Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 19. This morning we're going to be reading verses 1 through 22. So John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in chapter 19, verse 1, that then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king 
but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So let's pray together. Oh Lord, we ask that you would honor the preaching of your Son. Heavenly Father, honor the preaching of Christ crucified, the one that you sent into the world to do this very thing in order that sinners like ourselves might be freely and fully forgiven of our sins, counted righteous, reconciled to you, and brought into your glory. What a gift. Pour out your Spirit upon it. Bless every heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So growing up, you're made aware of history made aware of facts and dates and consequences. You're made aware of moments in time that went on to define the world or at least leave an imprint in the earth that the sands of time have not been able to bury. Those things have been written down with this sort of iron pen for our regular consideration. Now the Bible is a kind of history book. It records history as we normally think of it, wide swaths of history as we normally think of it, but it's also distinct in that it always does this with a view to redemption. The Bible's a book about the main storyline of what we call redemptive history. And from the start then, it alerts us to the most significant event to ever grace this created and fallen world. It records the fact of it, it records the win of it, and it records the effects of it. And by the way, nothing can be surer than what we have in the Bible here. All other histories will pass away, but this word will abide forever. We speak of an iron pen, but this word right here was written down by the very finger of God. And not just for our timeliest consideration, but a first importance and is needed for our immediate conversion. For the outworking of so great a salvation in this world. That for which history waited, since like Genesis 3. That for which John has as a gospel writer labored. 
that for which God, as its ultimate author, has long suffered, that for which our needy souls long, bursts onto the scene of our text today. And it's the king, in all of his beauty, giving his life as a ransom on the cross, giving his life in the stead or in the place of sinners like you and me to save us. Now, obviously, not everybody sees that. Many see only a man. They see only a man to be scorned or to be disowned or to be crucified or to be discredited. They see only a man to strike from the books, to strike from the annals of history, a man who's worthy only of cancellation, but certainly not the crowning of lives that are eternally indebted to him. I just want to say this morning that there is nothing of greater moment, nothing of greater moment than what you make of the crucified Jesus. So what is he to you? And what about his cross? Is his cross next to nothing to you? Is it next to nothing? Or is it the whole lot of every saving thing? Well, our text is going to tell us what it should be. So let's come to it. Let's see first the soldier's ironic defamation of King Jesus. Starting in verse 1, we're told that for no good reason, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now the term for that is scourged. It's noteworthy, I think, that John says nothing more about it. Nothing more about it. He doesn't go Mel Gibson's route in the Passion of the Christ, okay? He says nothing more about it here. That's going to be his habit, same as the other gospel writers. Uh, Their focus is not so much as ours may be on the physical anguish that Jesus suffered. We could talk about what scourging did to a person's body, but the gospel writers don't do that. They just state it. Jesus was flogged. And then they move on. Because their goal is not mere sympathy, it's not mere emotionalism that's driven along by graphic detail and things like that. The gospel writers are after faith in the facts of the gospel. And the truth is, the anguish, whatever the anguish was, of scourging is not the chief anguish that Jesus suffered for you and me. So the gospel writers, again, they want to they set our focus elsewhere on another anguish. That's not to say we're to be all numb to this. Jesus was, in point of fact, flogged. And after that was finished, some soldiers, maybe some of those soldiers who he had earlier driven to the ground by the pure force of his word in the garden, they now thought that it was a rich thing to have a bit of fun with his palpable poverty. And so verses 2 and 3, you look there, it says they begin to mock him. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. And they go and they get a purple robe, purple the color of majesty or royalty. They clothe him in this purple robe, and we know they then bow to him. They bow down before him, and they say to him like this, Hail, King of the Jews! You look really mighty. I'll tell you that much. 
Hail, King of the Jews. And then they strike him. Some texts say they struck him with the reed. This one that with their hands, probably both. So let it be stunning here at the beginning that Jesus receives that. He receives that and everything that follows in the perfection of grace. Though they reviled him, he reviled them not. This is stunning. He knows his purpose. And it's not to kick and scream, injustice! Look at all this injustice! No. It's to bow his sacred head to it. And it's incredible. Just think for a second. What made Satan's earlier temptations of Jesus, you think all the way back to the temptations in the wilderness, what made his temptations so very difficult, so tempting to Jesus? but that they circled around who Jesus really was. If you're the Son of God, don't you want to prove that? They circled around who He really was. They circled around what He could really do. You want to turn that stone into some bread? I know you can take some fish and a few loaves and do this. Don't you want to do that? Feed yourself. So these temptations, they circle around who Jesus really was and who he, what He could really do, except the thing is, is that He always just pitted it against God's will for Him. He pitted it against obedience to God. What He desired for Jesus. And so it would have been sinful for Him to do it. So let's not miss how now, after He's been flogged, Jesus is still continuing in obedience. His obedience is not yet quite complete. He's still doing it continuing in obedience, though he knows that what they mock is also, in fact, true about him. Had to be so hard. If only they could see that the flesh they tore was a flesh that he had taken on. That the one that they mocked was the praise of angels and the pleasure of God. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. That the one they crowned was in fact the Lord of glory. That the thorns that they had fashioned for him foretold the curse that he was to bear for those like them. That they clothed him in royal purple who would clothe such wretches as we are, as they were in his own crimson obedience perfect obedience, that they struck him on the face, in which face God displays his grace to the saving of our souls. If only they could see the truth. If only in their defamation of him, they would catch a glimpse, as one soldier will, a centurion will, at the cross, They could just catch a glimpse of His true-to-God fame. His majesty. It follows then that Pilate brings Him out to be seen. As he puts it in verse 4, it's that his accusers might see that he at least, Pilate at least, finds no guilt in Jesus whatsoever. Of course, giving Jesus to such punishment like flogging, scourging, And all these things now seems especially odd if the goal all along was to declare his innocence. 
Pilate seems to think that an eviscerated Jesus, an eviscerated body would produce corporate pity. That's enough. He doesn't need to be crucified. If nothing else, surely he has suffered sufficiently. Behold the man, he says, verse 5. See him, be satisfied with this. But there will be no satisfaction on their part until the man is crucified. Dear ones, never doubt the insatiable nature of sin. What it is to be in the high tides and the roaring waves of sin, we can pray to never know. And we can little tell. But here has to be a picture of it. If ever there was a picture of it, it has to be here. This scene. The sinfulness of sin in sinners like us is seen in that God first sent His Son into the world to suffer as He does in our text. And second, that we will not be satisfied until that Savior, that Son, is killed in the worst of ways. Evisceration, not enough. Only crucifixion. Only that kind of defamation will do. Oh, even Pilate, who just gave a man he knows to be innocent to flogging and mockery, even he has a conscience that the religious leaders have apparently long forfeited. Pilate tells them, take him yourselves. Take him yourselves and crucify him yourselves, for I find no guilt in him. Just think about that. It moves us to see alongside the soldier's ironic defamation, Pilate's own dreadful indecision about King Jesus. You do not want to stay there. It's here in verse 7 that his accusers make their first actual charge. They have a law, and in that law, blasphemers, those who malign the name of God, they ought to die. They took it very seriously. They ought to die. And Jesus, they say, has not only maligned the name of God, He has taken the name of God upon Himself. He's made Himself the Son of God. And if you remember in John chapter 5, they understand Him rightly then to be equating Himself with God. So let's just not be fooled by folks who want to claim that Jesus was not God or that those who said He said He was simply misunderstood what he was saying. The Jews of Jesus' day, again, we want to be very clear about this, the Jews of Jesus' day want Jesus crucified precisely because they understood him correctly. They just refused to believe that that could be possible. They refused to believe that what he was saying was right. The issue is this. Is Jesus a liar of the cross-deserving sort? Or are they incapable of seeing the divine truth about Him? That is the question that every human being must answer. Only better we can pray than Pilate answers. You see something of the possibility 
dawns on Pilate here, and it says he terrifies him. It terrifies him still further. Has, has he at best, he may be thinking, at best just unjustly disfigured a holy man? Or worse, perhaps in his mind, has he just scourged a supernatural person? And if he has, what can I do? <laughs> what is there to do? How can I make up for it? Is it possible that I can be forgiven in any way? How can I get out of this? How it is in us to think above nature, only to live beneath it. Such as the indecision of Pilate about Jesus. You never know when God will show up in your personal space. So, word to the wise, you best be ready to listen as often as you have opportunity. You see, Pilate did not do that. He comes to Jesus in verse 9, and he asks Jesus a question that he's already answered. Jesus, where are you from? If you were here a week ago, you know the answer to that question. Because you heard it, and so did Pilate. He just didn't listen. I don't think Pilate, when he asked that question, where are you from, I don't think he's looking for Jesus to say, Nazareth. But it doesn't matter, because Jesus doesn't answer him, and he doesn't answer him because he's already given that answer. The issue is, Pilate just needed to give an ear to hear Jesus earlier. He needed to give a care and concern becoming, recall, of Jesus' actual significance. If Pilate had done that, he might have heard as he was supposed to hear, right? The truth might have rung true to Pilate's own heart. Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It comes from heaven. It comes from above. It goes through the cross not looking to be delivered. And it brings sinners that way, pardoned to God. If only Pilate hadn't been so dismissive about Jesus the first time. Oh, friends, listen, whenever you're encountered by the Word of Christ, make a habit of pleading with God for a heart that hears well. I want us to hear this morning that the health of our hearing, beloved, is relative to the significance we place upon the speaker, isn't it? Right? How do you think that Pilate might have listened differently if it had been Caesar who had come to Pilate instead of Christ? How do you hear those in your life, in your spheres of influence, how do you hear those that you perceive to be most essential to the outcome of your life, to the happiness of your life? How do you hear those people? And how then do you hear the Word of God who holds your life in His hand? How then do you hear the Word incarnate? What kind of ear do you give to him? It is the poverty of a church, and therefore the world, 
when we listen so poorly, dismissively, indecisively to the revelation of God in Jesus. Well, you see there in the text that Pilate does not take kindly to Jesus' silence. You hate to see it. It seems like that Pilate is on the verge of humility and then Jesus stays silent like a lamb before his shears is silent. And all of a sudden, Pilate's native pride, it wells up again to protect its home. And so the fear that he felt quickly gives way to instilling fear. No doubt that's worked before as governor. Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? Or that I have authority to crucify you? And into that, Jesus will speak. He will not let his cross be robbed of its divine design. He will not let it appear as anything less than his own passion and glory and purpose. Pilate, the truth is you speak of what you do not know. You would have no authority over me Just think about this, y'all. Pilate is a Roman governor. Jesus is a Jewish man from Nazareth. You would have no authority over me. At all. Unless it had been given you The only reason Pilate has any authority over the life and death of Jesus is because God had ordained that. And Jesus also had willingly submitted himself to God's ordination. That's it. Pilate is not the biggest lion in the room. Compared to the lion of the tribe of Judah... The sovereign Christ, Pilate's just a runt kitten, to put it slightly. He only holds the cards, as it were, because Jesus is dead set. This lion is dead set on being first the Lamb of God. That's why. And oh, how we could wish Pilate could see it decisively for himself. You see, Jesus is not done speaking with Pilate here. He then adds that he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Friends, we need to hear something here. Maybe it's a new thought for us that all sins are eternally vile. All sins are eternally sinful. But apparently not all sins are equally vile or sinful. Caiaphas and his crew, those who are crying out for the crucifixion of Christ, are sinning against far more light, far more advantages, far more data points, far more revelation than Pilate could ever have dreamed of having available to him. And so the fact of what happens to Jesus by the will of God is yet on their account a greater sin than the sin of Pilate. So let's understand that. It is a very, very great sin to have the Word of God in our hands 
and to hear the word of God on the regular, only to despise and reject Jesus for all that he is. That is a very great sin. A lot of times when we think of great sins, we think of worldly things, right? But to have, to hold, to hear the word of God and reject Jesus, that, Jesus says, is a great sin. At the same time, the fact that their sin is greater does not pardon Pilate for his own. You see that? That they have the greater sin does not mean that Pilate has no sin. That they have the greater sin does not mean that Pilate is somehow justified in what he's doing with Jesus. That's not the point. So even here... While it's a wonder that he can even stand at this point, much less speak so conscientiously, Jesus would move Pilate towards the truth. They all, and he no less, are without excuse. All of them. They all need what God has given Jesus authority to accomplish on the cross. And that's salvation from the penalty of all their sins all their sins. And so he's putting it on the table here for Pilate to entrust his soul to him, to Jesus. He's saying, Pilate, you need to decide, be decisive here. With whom will the allegiance of your soul, with whom will the allegiance of your heart finally, ultimately, supremely stand? It's clear that his tone is amazingly friendly, as we might expect of Jesus, and that Pilate then, by all means, seeks to release him. He's not like, man, that really, I didn't like that. That offended me, and now you're really going to get the cross. No. He seeks to release him. Tragically, it's also clear that when pressed, Pilate's friendship with the world remains determinative for how he relates to Jesus. To seek his release is not the same as being set free yourself. Otherwise, you'd go farther. You'd not only seek a better situation for Jesus, but when you saw that a better situation for Jesus and for yourself with Jesus was no longer an option in this world, still then, if you were truly converted, you would take up your cross and follow him. Pilate is legitimately tragic. So very close, yet so very far away. He might well be what they used to call almost Christians. He gives Jesus a hearing. He talks with Jesus. He feels for Jesus. He fears what he's done to Jesus. He declares the innocence of Jesus. He responds positively to Jesus charging him with guilt and sin. He works for a better outcome in which in another world, perhaps, he and Jesus might be good friends. But Pilate never knows what's been called the expulsive power of a new affection 
for Jesus. Jesus becomes king over everything. He gets it all. The allegiance of our hearts. Our greatest, chiefest affection is for him. Jesus never has the throne of Pilate's heart. And so Pilate lives in this dreadful indecision. Knowing there's more than meets the eye with Jesus. Trying to do what he can for him, but never trusting him. Never trusting Jesus to do what only Jesus can for Pilate. Pilate likes the truth. Pilate likes the truth, but he does not love him. And so we come in light of it to see the crowd's idolatrous desire for King Jesus. Sadly, if you're familiar with the general history of Israel in relationship to God and his servants, his prophets, and so on, what follows comes as really no surprise. As we've tried to stress Pilate also wants them to see Jesus in a different light, right? Not a saving light, of course, but a a guiltless light nonetheless. And it is all their loss. It is all their loss and condemnation that they cannot be persuaded at all about him. And we're seeing it just how compromised and condemned their religiosity really is. A second ago, a second ago, they're worried about ritual purity for Passover's sake. We've got to eat the Passover. We can't go into Pilate's headquarters. Yet here, with Passover, again, centrally in view, they not only double and triple down on their desire for Jesus, but in the process make it clear that they have no king but themselves. The God that they profess to venerate, to worship, to serve. They cast aside quickly as they can to see Jesus crucified. And that holds for all time that kind of relationship. You cannot hate Jesus and at the same time love God. You cannot pine away in earnest for the death of Christ and belong in any true way to the living God. Pilate is nearer the truth than the Jewish religious leadership is. So you see verse 12 and on. He takes private counsel with them trying to free Jesus. And what do they do? They pit the freedom of Jesus over against the priorities of Pilate. If you let this rival king loose on this great empire of Rome, you are no friend to Caesar, Pilate. There's a sense in which that's true. And there's a sense in which that's false. Though the false version is what the Jews wanted, and yet it's also what they use here to promote the cross because they know that's not what Jesus is. Jesus is not their militaristic, zealot, Messiah, conqueror of Rome. They know that. 
but to then claim that he is that to advance their case against him. And this is where Pilate's better sense about Jesus proves almost, but not enough. Where his deepest loyalties, his deepest loyalties, those guttural loyalties are exposed. As he brings Jesus out, verse 13, and takes his place upon the judgment seat. What irony. All things are ominous. John even calls a timeout in verse 14 just to set the stage, to remind us it was time to prepare for the Passover, time to recall, to observe, to see divine deliverance. But that means something ominous for the deliverer. That means an atoning sacrifice, an atoning death is on the horizon. And so here's Jesus. (laughs) Standing before the judgment seat of sinners. Priests, politicians, peoples, Sinners, cowards, influencers, idolaters, you and me. And twice more, Pilate does all he's willing to do. Behold your king. And beholding him, the crowd cries out, away with him. Away with him. We want nothing more to do with him. Crucify him. Again, Pilate, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest responsible for the nation's fidelity, their faithfulness to none over God, then lead the way in responding, we have no king but Caesar. And just there, Just there, we're meant to run back to a time when in rejection of God, they clamored for a king like the other nations. And how God eventually gave them a king after his own heart named David. And they loved and hated him. One named David to whom God would promise, 2 Samuel 7, a greater son who would deliver on the saving promises of God. And here John's saying it, is saying, here is that son. Here is that greater son of David. Jesus. And Pilate, unwilling to bend any further for him, he now breaks hard the other way. You see verse 16, it says, Alas, He delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. We cannot leave this without gaining a sense of the heartbreaking terror it is to reject Jesus for yourself. If all the promises of God, if all the saving promises of God 
are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. What is it to reject Christ Jesus? But to embrace eternal condemnation. What is it to reject Him? But to persist in standing unforgiven, unforgiven before the judgment seat, not of sinners, but of God. What is it to reject Him, but to challenge this long-suffering patience of God intended to lead us to repentance? What is it but to challenge or even to provoke the terrible side of His eternal justice against us? What is it to reject Jesus, but to deprive oneself of the grace of God, and on the contrary, to call down upon oneself all the miseries of those who finally think themselves far above mercy. In rejecting for themselves the one God sent into the world in love to save the world, they say it straight, We'd rather perish in our sin than trust in Him for eternal life. O church, Isaac Watts captures something of this tragedy. He writes, How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores, while all our hearts and all our songs, the believer, all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? Listen, when thousands make a wretched choice and would rather starve than come. That's here. How can we really believe this? Oh God, break us. And never say a single gospel word to those who are living right outside our door. Some of us perhaps have never given a notice of good news to sinners one time in our lives. Yet we claim Christ as our own. How can that be if this be true and we believe it? So friend, listen, you do not fly away from Jesus without flying straight toward hell. But God sent Jesus so that you could be spared what you deserve. 
and be with him forever by grace. Salvation from sin is in Christ alone. And so we come to the momentous event of history. And I want you to just see God's crowning of King Jesus on the cross. Being delivered into the hands of sinners, we're told they took him. In verse 17, as the mightiest sin offering ever made, it says this guiltless man, what? Went out. You've got to go to Hebrews and some other places in the Old Testament. You'll understand that, okay? Talk about it after service. But he went out of the city to the place of sin offering, bearing his own cross to be slain for us atop Golgotha. Then we get some of the most substantive words ever written. There they crucified him. Right where we are in John, we need to hear it. Jesus is now crucified. Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, I am incarnate, is now crucified. And while John will leave systematics to Paul and others, What a picture he paints of what this marriage, Christ and his cross, is all about. Beloved, right now begins the atoning work of Jesus. It's not finished yet. That's coming. You come back next week, we'll hear him say it. It is finished. That's not yet. It's only begun. It's just begun. He's only just begun to undergo the greatest service for which he came into the world sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the books. So as the nails go in, the judgment of God against us begins to be suffered not by us, but by Him. And John again depicts this by telling us Jesus was crucified with and between two others. We know them to be criminals. And so we see Jesus here identifying with sinners, taking the place of sinners as He did with Barabbas a week ago, only now it's not the penalty for one man's sins against Rome that He's absorbing to erase. It's the penalty of all our sins before God that He's absorbing to forever erase. It's the penalty no man but Christ crucified can erase. There is no debt relief from our sins but through Him and what He's doing here. So here He is. We're to see Him crucified and crowned with thorns, standing in our place, becoming us and bearing the curse of God that we deserved, that is what has now just begun. And so we can just forget the nails 
He's now begun to take in the cup in the garden that made God tremble and ask, is there any other way? (laughs) If possible, is there any other way? Nevertheless, here he is doing God's will, drinking God's wrath, and with every passing ounce of those eternal hells that we deserve, he is drinking your judgment and my judgment dry. Behold your king. Friends, our sins will not go unpunished. Don't miss that in the cross of Jesus Christ. God is good. And therefore, he is just everything we would want him to be. Good and just. But therefore, all sins will be justly punished. Either in hell to come or in Christ already crucified. You pick. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. Zero. It's gone. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have been united to Jesus by faith. And so here then, as John has told us throughout the last two years plus of our time in this gospel, here is the ladder to God. Christ crucified. Here is the ladder to God. Here is the the temple remodeled. Here is the cure that is lifted up like the serpent on the pole in the wilderness. Here is the bridegroom who's dying to save his bride. Here is the bread of life that is broken for us. Here is that fount of living waters that is opened up for you and me. Here is the light of the world shining most brightly. Here is the great I am rejoicing our father Abraham. Here is the good shepherd finding his sheep. Here is the resurrection and the life preparing death for the slaughter. Here is that grain of wheat that dying multiplies its life. Here, right here, is the strong man ending Satan's rule. Here is the way and the truth and the life making access to the Father once for all. Here is that John 17 great high priest who is making full atonement. And can it be? Yes, it can be. Here then is the revelation of God. You want to see God? Here it is. Christ crucified. This is the glory of Christ This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is God crowning Jesus on the cross. So again, and forever, behold your King. We're to note that Pilate writes something about him. 
See what he writes, how he writes it, how he closes, verses 19 to 22. Publicly, multilingually. For all the world, as it were, this crucified man is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But as their desire was to see him discredited by the cross, the chief priests demand a retraction just there. Not that he is our king, but only that he said he was our king. He made himself out to be something that he was not, Pilate. That's what we want there. And it is surely a providence of the only true sovereign God that the only time, okay, the only time that Pilate stands his ground is now. This is wild. Every time before, he caves, he caves, he caves, and now he stands. What I have written courage I have written that is nothing less than God establishing the truth this man is the king of the Jews and more therefore he's all the Bible intended that title to mean the crucified Jesus is Messiah the crucified Jesus is the Christ of God. He's the one who, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Greek, Latin, Aramaic, all people to myself. Man, one could wish that Pilate had believed what he'd written with such resolve. Clearly a person can state the truth without believing it. But unbelieving friend, that's not what God desires for you this morning. He wouldn't set this before you without wanting it to call on you, not just to behold your king, but to believe in him. So here's how one put it for you one more time. Quote, at the cross, Christ became for us all that God must judge. So that by faith in Christ, we might become all that God cannot judge. He became sin for us. You believe in him, you get clothed in his righteousness. Won't you believe this morning the message of the cross? The transaction that occurs Right there, the great exchange, Christ for sinners. Would you be forgiven your sins? Would you be counted righteous before God? Would you be reconciled to God? Would you be qualified for heaven, for eternal life? You, the sinner. It's all before you. Well, the word of the cross is folly, as Paul would put it, to those who are perishing. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being what? Saved. The cross 
is the wisdom and the power of God. What will you make of the crucified Jesus? What do you see? All our prayer as a church for you is that you would see light. A certain kind of light. The light of the knowledge of the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ for you. If you do see that, turn away from your sins. Turn away from your sins and trust yourself to this Jesus. I I promise you, on God's word, on God's honor, He will save you. To close with you, beloved, I just want to say this. What we've seen this morning, what we will see again next week, is simply our King in all of His beauty. It's an old song, you know it. It goes like this. Crown Him with many crowns. The Lamb upon His throne. The Lamb upon His throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, awake our souls and sing of Him who died for all of thee and hail Him as thy matchless King in life and in death and through all eternity. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our words are far too weak and frail to capture the might of your saving work in Jesus. And so we would pray right now and ask that you would attend your word in a special, extraordinary, supernatural way. Please emblazon grace upon every heart. Help us to see the King, your Son, the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in His saving glory. Set it within every heart. Abolish the darkness. Let that light come in. If it's there, make it all the brighter. Stir it up. Holy Spirit, stir it up. Make it a grand fire, a blaze. May you have all the honor and glory, Jesus, in whose name we ask. Amen.